Welcome to Locarno Meets, where the most exciting new talent and established legends of cinema come to chat about art, life, movies, and everything in between. Brought to you by UBS and hosted by me, Alexander Miller, from Locarno Film Festival. There's nothing more stressful than a family gathering. And in Family Portrait, the debut feature from Lucy Kerr is the specter of posing for a multi-generational photograph which looms over the ensemble cast. This is a beautifully staged, dreamlike piece of work which still manages to be both scary and funny, like if Robert Altman and Terence Malick had formed an unlikely alliance. Kerr comes from a dance background and the movie swings elegantly gliding the viewer through overheard snippets of conversations from family members seemingly unaware that something very strange and scary is happening in this grand Texas garden. There's a lot of very specific performances mm. in it. Is the family you're making a film about a family, is it based on a real family? Is it based on real people? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I wanted to get very specific about the dialogue, everything in the frame, and, and the people themselves in the characters. So, um, yeah, it's sort of loosely based on my own family. So I have three sisters and in family portrait, there are four sisters, all of my sisters and I, we have a lot of fun together. You know, we have our specific personalities and I wouldn't say in family portrait, they're each sister is based on a sister, mm -hmm. but I wanted to really dive into the specificities of each character and kind of how each of them feels about this portrait even though that's not clear maybe in the film, but it comes out in their behaviors or in how they interact with one another. And also something about my own family, it's like very much fitting into this kind of social class in Texas, kind of upper middle class, upper class group of people whose families have been in Texas for a while, for generations. And the sisters in the film and my sisters, you know, they're all married and they have kids and kind of fit those expectations, but at the same time, they're quite weird and strange and talk about like all kinds of weirdly specific and strange conversations. So like, I'd like to show that they're not these stereotypical Southern sorority girls, sure. you know? I mean, there are lots of conversations in it, which frankly feel like they must have been pulled from real life because I'm not entirely sure how you could imagine them. There's a long kind of anecdote about a grandfather that we never met whose photograph was taken in the second world war on a stretcher but was reappropriated perhaps by accident as a kind of anti-vietnam image that's also based on something real yeah so my grandfather is in this picture from world war ii where he got shot in the leg and there's a picture of him on a stretcher being carried by four men and it yeah it became pretty famous that picture and then one of my sister went to um, the memorial in Washington, D.C., and she saw that picture on a um, T-shirt saying, remember those that were in Vietnam. And she was like 12 at the time and had seen that. She knew that wasn't from Vietnam, and it was yeah, a really strange story as well. And and then it felt like a interesting parallel to the Christmas card and um, to get into uh, the movie They Live, which is also a movie that my dad likes. <laughs> The family portrait itself, is that something your family does? Yeah, as well. So um, every year there's a Christmas card. My mom kind of takes it very seriously every year and it always has a theme to it. So yeah, I shot a 
like documentary footage of my family trying to take a Christmas card <laughs> in 2018. I was in film school, so I like went home with a camera to shoot things. So I just set up it, set it up on a tripod, and it was in the same location as where this film was shot. Mm-hmm. And in that documentary, we were all wearing Christmas themed outfits, so it was like very strange um, us all wearing these Christmas outfits. And it took a very long time for everyone to come together to take the picture. It was like all kinds of things happening and it almost looked choreographed mm. cinematically. Like, and that's where like some of the specificity of the characters come from. Like in that document, um, one of the brothers-in-law like can't stop playing with a soccer ball and like can't seem to stay still or want to fit in this picture. And it's almost like, what is this anxiety he has, yeah. you know, about um, this family or about, this ritual he has to do every year and kind of like what he married into. So that's sort of what I took from that footage. I'm, you know, there's something which starts off kind of with the, with the boyfriend character, the Mm -hmm. the Polish guy. But I think that what you do really well is you kind of express, well, at least it's an anxiety that I've had many times in my life of being in other people's houses and not entirely understanding the rules, traditions, norms, and feeling it was almost as though everything is being slightly mistranslated to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I th- I thought you got that across really well. But then what's so powerful is perhaps that anxiety about being inside that place is transposed into into our protagonist, the daughter. Mm, nice, yeah. Am I right in thinking that it's set kind of at the cusp of COVID? Yeah, it's it's supposed to be. So it's like... I know it was a bit different here in the U.S., but like this cousin, she very mysteriously being very young and healthy, just passes away from a virus. And it's sort of like she was one of the first people to become get sick um, before we really understood what it was. Or maybe she had been traveling or something and came back. Yeah. So that's the idea. I wanted to be super subtle about it because... Sure. Um, I know we're all a little tired of COVID. <laughs> yeah, but not pre-COVID stuff. That's what okay. I thought was good about it. Like, it's not a kind of, we're in the middle of it. But I think the idea of not knowing what's coming over the cliff, what did that add to the story that you were telling? Yeah, so I think um, we've been through so many stages with COVID. I remember when it first hit, I was in a class in CalArts taught by Harry Dodge on interdependency. Um, so we read this book on immunity right when it hit, which about... Um, immunity and vaccines and the resistance or against vaccines and all of that and the history of them. So like at that time, we were all really interested in what was happening, the way that we, the whole world was so, so interconnected by this. Mm -hmm. And so that was like a stage. And then it kept going on and I had to go home. I graduated during COVID, graduated from my master's and was in a limbo for like a, a year to and was writing this script so it felt very acute at the time this kind of loss of community loss of meaning and feeling of being in a stuck or a limbo and I actually was having dreams of like trying to do something but it never happened mm. and I feel like that translated into the film being unable to do this thing so I was thinking about this need to um, keep presenting this positive image Mm. um, while there's mass death and mass graves in New York City, you know, and then meanwhile in other places, people are not believing this or like people that, you know, saying it's a hoax and this and that. Mm. So yeah, it was sort of about everything crumbling, but still the need to, of presenting this American excellence or 
this American kind of uh, superiority and um, especially in the South presenting a positive image is like the most important thing or like a prosperous image or yeah. successful image. That's perfectly summed up by a big family portrait, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it seems there is kind of a theme of violence running through it. You know, you you obviously there's a long conversation as we discussed about, you know, about World War II in Vietnam, but also stories of alligators eating dogs, <laughs> amputations from toxic shock syndrome, that type of thing. Were you were you consciously trying to kind of sprinkle a sousson of uh, violence throughout it or did that kind of, I don't know, come unconsciously? I think it was both like Rob Rice who um he had many roles, sort of directorial advisor. So we were working together on set to think, okay, well, this is great, but like, how can we push it further and try different experiment or try different ways or like elevate the the script, elevate the film together. And he said the other day, um, almost in every scene, there's like a body part that is mentioned. So there's like bladder, gums, legs. He got shot in the leg in mm. World War II. Vietnam helicopter pilots are um, have a four-week life expectancy. And then, the, of course, the longer conversation that you mentioned about all these illnesses, sepsis, swine flu, this and this. And I think it's just like uh, in my family, the way of coping with difficult feelings is um, reverting to kind of like gossip about mm. other people or kind of medical horror stories in terms of kind of loss or grief or death or decay that inspired me. And just, I think the body is kind of my, what I always kind of return to since that's my kind of main interest is kind of the body and performance and image making and the gap between the body and the, and its image and so I just like bringing up all those bodily things in this very like repressive environment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Emotionally repressive, yeah. You're a choreographer, right? Mm-hmm. How choreographed was this film? Because the movement is beautiful, but complex. Yeah, it's not all choreographed, um, which I think sometimes I tried not to be too choreographed because sometimes I think even if it's a great beautiful blocking you can mm. tell that it's kind of fake <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i tried not to do that um and uh i think working with lydia the cinematographer was just crucial like um watching many films that use kind of tableaus bellatar satin tango so like that film has um long takes it has moving camera outside like we have in the inside it has kind of very interesting three shots or two shots instead of shot reverse shot. Mm. So yeah, it was in terms of how choreographed things are like those two scenes that people might think of as the most choreographed where they're going down to the river in the beginning and it's a bit wider and then they're going down to the river in the end and she's sopping wet. That I gave each person kind of a task and a different trajectory. So some of them, I told them, you know, to keep going. Some of them go back and forth for different things. But within those um, directions, they are kind of improvising. Rob and I told each of them, you know, what each of their kind of story is with this picture. So for example, the sister that has a baby acts like she doesn't care about the picture, but really she wants to be in the middle with her baby and so that's her on what's on her mind. And so each person has like a different thing on their mind, kind of. And that helps create the chaos sure. um, rather than just saying act crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Watching it, I was reminded of this quote about 
Days of Heaven by Terence Malick, where mm. someone said he makes uh, nature documentaries about humans. And your film, I thought, did something similar where it's 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 observing these people in much the same way it observes an earwig at one point. I think it's mm -hmm. an earwig. Is it yeah. an earwig? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like creepy crawly. It's like some kind of thing, yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously they have a kind of a deep relationship with nature in this. I don't know. I couldn't tell whether nature was a... A, a terrifying force or, or a or a kind of uh, a benevolent one. Oh, that's great. I, you can't tell. I, guess. <laughs> I didn't go in with so many of the ideas of the animals, like the earwig or caterpillar. Like we gave ourselves little blocks of time to just go around the property, see who's around and do things with them. And I just saw that on the ground and I was like, oh, let's, let's film this. And then, oh, let's have the character Laura lay down and where it's very getting very close to her because she was staying on that property. So most of us were staying there all together, um, mm. which really helped with that. And then the mother and the daughter sitting on the table, on the rock, those two vultures, the birds, they came to just sit on the rock too. So we were filming that at the same time. And actually where the birds are sitting on the rock, the mother and the daughter are swimming also mm. in the distance, but we ended up not using that whole frame. But yeah, it's, for me, nature is really important um, because in the U.S. and in Texas, everything is private property. So all even like stretches of deserts, pro private property in West Texas. So I was very much thinking about land enclosure. And then I think just being living on the river, you know, it just became such a powerful place. I think it was so hot. It was like 100 degrees we all needed to take a swim after set. And I think it kept everything, the vibes and everything Sounds very nice. Yeah. <laughs> we were able to cool off. And that's how it is when my family's there is that everyone is drawn to the river, but it's a bit sad in a way because the property, you know, the grass is all perfectly groomed and the, there's so much water wasted on keeping the grass like that. And the water comes from the river and the river gets lower because of that. And also there are some relics around the house, um, like a Pennzoil trash can in one of the scenes. So they're like little hints of the oil industry and thinking about how nature has been exploited and then giving this force to nature um, so that it also becomes a character um, that we think about. And then at the end of the day, kind of we're, we're trying, the family's trying to make this picture and present this positive image, but that's just a way to try to immortalize ourselves, but really we're, you know, just also animals like the two birds on the rock and also going to die. And, you know, the sound design yeah, yeah, is really, really good. Tell, okay. me, tell me what was the thinking process behind that. Yeah. I mean, I think it was just such a, I just knew, know how important sound is and that it's just um, historically kind of the last thing people think about <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> And so I didn't want that to happen. And when I was in school, I really appreciated the sound classes I took and just, it affects us so emotionally, mm -hmm. so viscerally, but in a way that we don't define or recognize when it affects us, kind of. It, we just let it, it just washes over us and transports us. So I knew that I needed to create this uh, dimension with the sound that's like a three-dimensional feeling when you're sitting in the theater. So not just watching something in front of you, but being enveloped. Andrew Seidenberg and Nikolai Antonov are just incredible 
sound artists and designers. And Andrew was there on set and he knew this place very well. And he was always recording things everywhere Mm. and um, nothing was ADR'd or anything like that. And it was the attention to detail and the space was really prominent in his recordings. And then um, he kind of designed the first drafts and then we sent it to Nikolai and we all traveled to Berlin together and did more design and more mixing all together in a theater for like 10 very long days. And then after that, Nikolai and I worked on the intro because I was, it was a big challenge for me, actually, this introduction. I wasn't, I didn't have sound design that was like quieting them and this rumbling for a while. I had just diegetic sounds. Sure. And then another, a different type type of sound. And so we worked like three months on that intro. So probably the sound was like an eight month process because Andrew came in at pretty much at the beginning of when we had a, a rough cut. It's um, like the sound, the sound in some ways is the first uh, signifier to the audience that it's going to be an unsettling uh, experience. And look, I'm probably reading too much into this, but the whole thing from an early shot of early, very centrally framed shot in the sitting room, I could see the, the, the roof. It reminded me of the Overlook Hotel. And then the final shots um, with her character walking around wet, she looked like Carrie. Um, <laughs> you mentioned John Carpenter in the film and the following <laughs> shots look like Halloween. I, oh, you know, that's so cool. I, I don't know. I did, was there any part of you was like, yeah, there's a bit of a horror in this? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I was totally going for that in a way that we can expand the genre of horror. And I'm interested in like combining different languages and kind of confusing the viewer and like, what exactly is this thing kind of? And then the risk getting really reductive and we can, we can delete this if you want, but like our main character, as we follow her to the lake and she dives in, she comes back. What has she digested? What has she started to understand? And over the course of the film, what has been, she been subjected to that has kind of brought on this extreme anxiety? Yeah. Um, well, she reads the passage at the beginning of the film by a woman named Leora Goder, who's a, a scholar. And um, that article is about Lacan. And it's very difficult to understand. But that first passage like really spoke to me, which is um, so she's this young girl's eating with her mother. And then she looks up from her food and sees that her mother has kind of disappeared from the world. And where did she go and when she, um, the quote, where did she go when she would leave her empty gaze fixed on me like a monster sitting before her? And that's something I've felt with my mother and coming from her body, which is such a trippy thing that we are born from our mother and having that intense connection. But then at a certain age, you realize you're separate from the mother. So like the the mirror stage or then you realize you're not one with the mother yeah. and there's like this mourning and this grief. Yeah, it's traumatic. Yeah, it's traumatic. And so that kind of existential feeling with the mother and then just this idea that the mother has left from her body. So she's kind of in a way going to search for the mother, but she never really finds her, but ends up in the water as if it's kind of like in the womb, which I don't need people to like understand that, but yeah. And then they turn into birds. So she has a flashback of her and her mother sitting on the rock. And then like the most that I can say about what happens to the mother is that she turns into like a bird. And then she's, you know, grieving that loss of the mother, whether it's just realizing that you're separate than the mother, or maybe the mother has died, or maybe, you know, they've all died. And yeah, I'm not sure. 
Well, I think it's really effective and really good. Um, oh, thank you. Thanks so much for coming to hang out. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Thanks again to Lucy. This has been Locarno Meets, a podcast from Locarno Film Festival brought to you by UBS. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your pods. This has been a true anti-classic production hosted by me, Alexander Miller, and produced by Jack Boswell.